Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of uh, Pastor Wolf Mueller's text, Has American Christianity Failed? We're going to be looking at Chapter 6, Go Play Outside, and going to be introducing just a couple of key concepts. Um, I'll introduce you to just a little bit of um, Latin vocab, and then uh, we'll go into this, which is largely setting the stage up for um, the how we understand the sacraments. And by we here, I really mean the historic church. I mean the church for 2,000 years, how we understand the sacraments, and particularly in our context where so much of American Christianity wants to force things inside of our hearts and into this kind of spiritually nebulous, imaginative sphere. Uh, the sacraments are a nice douse of cold baptismal water on all that, and hey, it's outside of you, and it's real, and it's concrete, and it's graspable. So we'll be looking at those themes today. But before we begin, let's have an invocation and the Lord's Prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so page 118, the start of chapter 6. Go play outside, is the title Wolfmuller has chosen for this. And, of course, the scripture he cites right off the bat, Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Quoted from 1 John chapter 3, verse 20. And already you can see the setup here from this verse. The matters of the heart, the internal matters, um, sometimes, mis I think, somewhat mistakenly understood as spirituality. Um, this kind of thing is uncertain. Now, it's not entirely invalidated. It's not as though it doesn't exist. It's just if we put the emphasis on the wrong syllable, we're going to get messed up on this point. If we have the internal as dominating the external, our heart dominating over um, God, we're going to have a big problem theologically. So this verse, when our heart condemns us, okay, that's one authority, there is another authority, even greater still, God, who is outside of us. So, already you can see the dynamic at play here in this well-chosen verse. Again, page 118, and let's just start where Wolfmuller starts. In American Christianity, the spiritual light is on the inside. Everything having to do with salvation happens in my heart. It is in my heart where the Lord moves me, touches me, talks to me. It is in my heart that I make the decision to follow the Lord. In my heart, I resolve to do better. In fact, in my quote-unquote decision for Christ, I am both inviting Jesus to live in my heart and at the same time giving my heart to Jesus. Everything important Everything having to do with my salvation, everything connected to the gospel is happening on the inside in the theater of my heart. 
the locus of God's action is inside. So, uh, this is a portrayal of uh, American Christianity. And I think, too, what you can see is not only on the inside, but look at the language of I am um, in my, quote-unquote, decision for Christ. You can see the active language. I'm the one doing the doing. I'm, a, I'm deciding. My will is active. But then I am both inviting Jesus. Right? So I'm inviting him. Um, his coming isn't even independent, but is rather wholly dependent upon me inviting. And then I am giving my heart to Jesus, which of course, you know, there too is the active language. And one might even pause at that kind of language and say, is it my heart to give? Am I my own? That I could even give this unto my creator who made me whose possession I am? No. So, even just in the language here, which seems what? I mean, honestly, honestly, and I think this is how most people mean it. We can be charitable here. It seems so pious. And it seems like there wouldn't be anything wrong with it. But on deeper analysis, when you look at it, you can't help but see the underpinnings of a kind of spiritual hubris, a kind of spiritual arrogance that I would have that I would think that this heart is mine and that I would give it to Jesus. And then very often with this set of ideas is this idea that my heart is worth something. <laughs> let me let me give this um let me give this hay covered dung filled stall to Jesus. That's um you know the the manger of my heart is actually more accurate, isn't it? Um, a place not fit for the king but a place that the king in love and mercy condescends to go and be born and live and dwell in. Anyway, isn't that more true? All right, so we're, we're diagnosing this on multiple fronts. Not only is it kind of, and, and you know, how does, this, how does this sound? Just kind of listen to it, okay? Me and my heart, my decision, my invitation, my giving, me, me, me. Remember the classic definition of sin given to us. Um, the self curved in on itself. And now we kind of see that, that self curved in on itself, grasping a hold of Jesus and still making it all about me. The Christian rather than Christ. All right, so there's the diagnosis. Now, what would be... So we, we've diagnosed an error... Okay, what would be the opposite error? Nothing inside of you matters at all. Jesus never wants anything to do with you except from a great distance. He will not come and make his home within you. When he says the kingdom of God is within your heart, he's in error. <laughs> um, so here would be the opposite error. Um, and this is where I'll introduce you to the two the two little Latin catchphrases. So they're easy. Extra nos, two words, um, nos nos, extra the way it sounds. Extra nos outside of us and intra nos inside of us. So extra nos outside of us, intra nos. And what we want to say because because this is what we see the scriptures teach is that God works on us extra nos and through those things that are outside of us, touches 
forms and shapes that which is intranos, inside of us. You see, we're not going to pit the two against each other. We're going to do two things. We're going to affirm the existence of both categories, but then we're going to see that there is an economy or ordering to the two categories. What comes from the outside affects what's going on on the inside. Does that make sense? Okay, and we're going to flesh that out over the course of this chapter. So if that's a little abstract, no problem. Wolf Mueller's going to take care of it for us. All right, let's go on a little further. Oh, we can pause there. I desperately need a sip of coffee. Any thoughts or questions? My favorite question to ask. None yet. Good enough. I got my sip of coffee in. I thank you for your indulgence. Uh, second for full paragraph on page 118. <clears throat> If God's action is located in the heart, you can understand why American Christianity sees anything happening outside my heart as being disconnected from the gospel. If it is external, then it is by definition a work. If it is outside of my heart, it must be law. Anything outside must have nothing to do with salvation. The distinction between external works and internal blessings is fundamental in American Christianity, and it has a number of important theological consequences. All right, so before we get any further with Wolfmuller and into the theological consequences, we can already see one of the issues that he, I think, in that the third paragraph on page 118, the distinction between external works and internal blessings is fundamental. Right? And that is this idea that if it's happening outside of my heart, then it is a work I have to do. And it's, it's, that's why Wolfenbach calls it law. So what do, what do we look at? Like what would be concrete examples of this? Well, by and large in American Christianity, and, and here we are kind of specifying American evangelicalism, we see what? That, um, what is baptism? Baptism is chiefly viewed as my act of obedience, my pledging myself to God and church that I am now very serious and very committed. Um, I am choosing to do this. I am being baptized. I am making this statement, this confession to God and church. Again, what's the common denominator if you're listening carefully? I. Right. Now, the same thing happens then with something else that's external to us, namely um, the Lord's Supper, okay? where Jesus says, take, eat, drink for you for the forgiveness of sins. See the directionality? Jesus giving to us to eat, to drink, and he's giving us for you for the forgiveness of sins. See the directionality from Christ to us. Now, American evangelicalism takes it and says, it's it's all about our remembering. Now, in extreme form, it even goes like this. Since it's all about me remembering Jesus, then it's completely on my own terms. I can commune or not commune as long as I'm remembering Jesus. I can use bread or grape juice or, I know this will scandalize you, but it's out there, pizza and root beer, or whatever it is that I choose to use in order to remember Jesus. Because it's not 
his words. It's not his actions that matter here. It's my remembering. Okay, so, uh, and, and that you, I mean, you can see why then this isn't a central part of American Christianity because, well, I can remember Jesus any old way. I don't need any stale oyster crackers and prepackaged grape juice to remember Jesus. And then you kind of get this bad theology too of like, well, the bread is somehow supposed to remind us of his, his flesh. Usually it's a white oyster cracker. That's kind of racist. <laughs> and the, and the grape juice is supposed to remind us. So these things then just become metaphors. The grape juice is just supposed to remind us of his, of his blood, you know, and, and so then the whole thing's a metaphor to help me remember. Now who's at the center of this again? Me, me remembering, me engaging in the metaphor, me choosing when to commune, even going so far as to choose the elements with which I will commune, etc. It's just me, me, me. All right. So this is one level of, of diagnosis we can do here when we see that at root, American evangelicalism, we should specify in this case, is not interested in those things that are external to us. These are, these are crutches, these are metaphors, these are helps. The real deal is happening inside of me. All right. So I think we can understand now um, the profundity, I think, here of uh, Wolfmuller's observation. Okay, so we're going to go into the theological consequences of this division between external and internal in American evangelicalism and then the, the stark emphasis, almost entire emphasis, on the internal. Wolf Mueller says, first, American Christianity has no sacraments. There are, to be sure, ordinances. The ordinance of baptism and the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. These are symbolic acts and indicators of my faith. They are my works and deeds, not the works of God. American Christianity understands baptism and the Lord's Supper to be law, not gospel. They are works completely disconnected from the forgiveness of sins. Well, we could spend a lot of time just fleshing out that paragraph, but for the sake of it, let's move on. American Christianity teaches that baptism is the first act of obedience. In baptism, we publicly testify that we have made a decision for Christ. Baptism is a symbol of our death and resurrection with Christ. The Lord's Supper is likewise a symbol, something that we do to remember Jesus and his sacrifice for us. In the scriptures, baptism and the Lord's Supper are bound up to all sorts of wonderful promises and gracious benefits. We will consider these in this chapter. American Christianity must conclude that there are no blessings or spiritual benefits in baptism or the Lord's Supper. Both happen outside of your heart. And there's kind of a, there's kind of a perverse logic to this too, just in the sense that if you understand these things as works that I am doing, it's why really the key, I think the key question um, is who's doing the doing in baptism? Who's doing the doing in the Lord's Supper? Because if you say it's me doing the doing, I, the Christian, doing the doing, then, then you can see how there's kind of a logic, uh, again, a kind of a perverse logic, but a logic that goes like this. Well, if it's me doing the doing, if it's my act of obedience, if it's my remember, then of course there can't be forgiveness attached. Because I can't earn 
or merit forgiveness by my actions. You see, you see, so I think that there's a kind of logic to how you land in that spot of there's no forgiveness of sins here. Um, and, but it's predicated upon this idea that it's me doing the doing. Now, what's the problem with that? Explicit scriptures that connect. I mean, Jesus himself says this cup is for you for the forgiveness of sins. Okay. And baptism is explicitly said to be a washing away of sins. All right. Now, what happens if we retain that, but flip it and say, this is God's work. Baptism is something that God does to us. Then is there any problem with receiving the forgiveness of sins? Or what if you said that the Lord's Supper is something God, through Christ, is doing to us, for us? And he says it's for the forgiveness of sins. Is there any problem? No, not yet. The only hang-up must be that, well, why am I receiving forgiveness of sins in the cup why am I receiving forgiveness of sins in baptism if I've already received the forgiveness of sins on the cross? But you remember how Wolfmuller addressed this in an earlier chapter. You didn't technically receive forgiveness of sins on a cross. There it was won for you, but not yet delivered to you. So baptism and the Lord's Supper are the delivery of this forgiveness of sins, won for us by Christ on the cross, delivered to us in holy baptism and in the Lord's Supper. Does that make some sense? Okay. Once you have that, by the way, you're Lutheran. Yeah, the rest just follows. It's dominoes. Once you have that, you go, okay, I, I not only get the sacraments, but I get how to do Lutheran theology. We're going to let God speak, and we're going to organize our thoughts around God's Word instead of, you know, organizing our thoughts around me. <laughs> okay, let's get, into, uh, let's get into number two, the second consequence that Wolfmuller identifies for us. That's over on page 119. The second and related theological consequence of denying spiritual benefit to anything external is the loss of certainty and confidence. All right, so this is big because this is kind of the material error, or at least where it leads you, where the rubber hits the road in, your, in terms of the experience of your Christian life. Wolfmuller continues, The human heart is notoriously uncertain. Have you ever had that experience where you wake up and you're just like, it feels like God's angry at me. <laughs> Why? The human heart's fickle, isn't it? One minute God's happy with you, one minute God's angry with you, one minute life's good, one minute life's the worst thing ever. <laughs> things, The things on the inside are unsure, Wolf Miller writes, always shifting and changing. One moment we are happy, the next we are sad, we are confident and then meek, perceptive and then confused. In one moment, we might be confident of God's love, and in the next, we are fearful of his wrath. If God is working only on the inside, then any confidence in the Lord is bound up to my subjective experience. If God brings blessings only to my heart, then my confidence in those blessings is bound up to my feelings. The heart is shifty, unstable, tossed to and fro like a ship on the sea. By refusing to see blessing and grace outside of ourselves, American Christianity creates a void of certainty and confidence. 
yeah, sometimes I, I know as a, as a younger Christian, it was very helpful for me just kind of this slogan, God is not your feelings. <laughs> I know it sounds overly simplistic. And if you've been, spent your whole life as a faithful Lutheran, maybe it sounds ridiculous to you. But um, God is not your feelings. It's this kind of moment and move where you're like, wait a minute. Okay, what's happening on, in, on the inside of my heart and its tumult? I need to own that. And that's completely independent and distinct from who God is and how God is. Now, where do I find out who God is, how God is, what his attitude is toward me? That's where I go to, this is not rocket science, his word. <laughs> what he himself says, not what I feel, but what he himself says and what he himself does. And that's baptism and the Lord's Supper. Um, that's the word put into action via sacrament, a, sacred action that God's doing unto us. Okay, so, um, yeah, that's where I find out how God feels about me. So God is not my feelings. And just to make that separation sometimes can be very, very freeing. All right, let's pause there and see if there's, um, I see a couple of hands toward the front here. Um, one over here and one over here. Try not to identify you in case uh, these recordings are being watched. Yeah. I, uh, Zuckerberg and friends come free us from our ignorance. Yeah, please. Um, American Christianity. Yesterday I was in the, in the hospital with my Saddleback friends. Mm -hmm. that one, well, my friend was passing and she passed this morning at 2 something a.m. And I can see the certainty that they all have that for sure they're going to heaven, uh, facing death in you know in front of us. And I, I see that I'm not that certain about it. Not myself, or it's just the the doctrine about it, the doctrine. Can you explain a little bit about this? Yeah. It's, I don't know. Isn't it they? They they are like a thousand percent that they are they're going to heaven. They they are saved. Mm -hmm. But will these will the doctrine matters? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Great question. Great question. So what we want to do here is we want to carefully parse this out. In the first place, if we find um, American evangelicals who are quite confident. We want to give thanks and praise to God. Because that's the goal. Ultimately, that's the goal. So we all be confident in the Lord's promise and that we all be assured in the face of afflictions, sorrows, and death itself that we are the Lord's, that He loves us, that He's forgiven our sins, and that He's bringing us to Himself in heaven. We, that's the goal. So let's not, let's not attack anyone for having that right. Um, that's exactly. Now, can, in, can we look and say, God be praised that that's how you all are facing death. God be praised for that. But it's not because of your theology. Rather, it's despite your theology. Okay? These two things actually are incongruent if you were to line them up. Now, we do this all the time. I know that this may be kind of a strange thought, but, but actually this is very, very common because we gladly and thankfully assert that there are Christians scattered around the globe in all different denominations. 
God be praised. That's God's action. And he's working there through his word. Here's the irony. Through his external word that's outside of each and every one of us, he's creating that internal confidence. And he's doing so even when the theology itself says the external word doesn't matter nearly as much as what's happening in your heart. You see, what's happening in that Christian is that that erroneous theology is being ignored and God's word is having its way within them. When that happens, we need to say, thanks and praise be to God. Now, what would be another way that we ought to look at this, though? Okay, so there are Christians scattered all around the world in all denominations who are confident in the face of death, who believe in God and are going to heaven. We simply want to say, God be praised. That's just not... Um, and then the implication would be, so doctrine doesn't matter. Can, is that a logical leap? That's a logical leap. <laughs> it's not a logical connection. All right, so no, doctrine matters. You feel that way despite your doctrine. I mean, God be praised, you do. But it's, can a Roman Catholic be saved? Well, not if they believe that their work, that the way that they get into heaven is by uh, getting rid of all of their sins, by their own good works, making self-atonement, standing before God and saying, here I am, I've made it, you're welcome. Thank you, Jesus, for opening the door and making this all possible, and I have achieved it. Is such a person saved? No, it's not I who say that, but St. Paul himself who says that. If He even uses just one little example. If you think that you have to be circumcised, that's just one little thing. If you think that you have to do something, even something so small as this, in order to be saved, you are fallen from grace. Okay, but now can a, can a Roman Catholic sit in a Roman Catholic church, hear the Roman Catholic theology, maybe even believe it in part, but at the end of the day, say, I am yours, Jesus, save me. Absolutely. And that's their salvation. But do you see how that's over and against the theology itself? I mean, a priest would say, no, 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 don't you dare believe that. <laughs> but in the Christian heart, they can't help it. It's the Lord himself who's put that faith within them. It's much the same in evangelicalism. If you really listen to Again, it's broad brushstrokes necessarily because otherwise how are we going to talk about it? I understand there's a diversity out there. There's all kinds of shades of difference. So I understand it's a nuanced conversation, but we just have to talk about it generally. Um, if, if a Christian has confidence in Jesus alone on the basis of his word, um, God be praised, but that's kind of over and against this theology that internalizes everything. If a Christian is saved and they could care less about the baptismal promises of the Lord's of the Lord's Supper. Well, God be praised that they're saved, okay? But does that mean that their errors about baptism of the Lord's Supper aren't serious? No, they're very serious. I, again, just objectively looking at it, it's devastating that Satan stole those gifts away from those Christian people, gifts that Christ freely gave that, that Satan stole. So, thank you, Lord Jesus, that you saved them even though the devil stole them. And probably, you know, again, hypothetically, it's like when we... uh if you think of 1 Corinthians 5, we're a little out on a tangent here, I hope you don't mind. But we're on, when you're in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, remember the wood, hay, and the stubble? So there's a foundation. This is kind of talking about the apostolic office and the pastoral office and how one builds. But there's an extension, at least um, by analogy, to the whole of the Christian life. The foundation is Christ Jesus. What we build upon that foundation is tested by fire. Remember the one who builds with wood, hay, and stubble? 
Um, you can build really fast with wood, hay, and stubble. You can erect a palace maybe over the weekend if you just take any old stuff and throw it together. Okay? But what happens? It's not fireproof, and that's the problem. So it's all tested by fire, and it's all consumed. But what remains? The foundation of Jesus Christ. So St. Paul says this person is saved, and yet as one who has suffered loss. I think that this is, so, so here's the parallel. You know, we're all in Christ Jesus going to be saved, and yet in some ways we're going to recognize where we were wrong in our life, in thought, word, and deed, and what we held to or not, and that's going to be burnt away as dross, right? Um, as wood, hay, and stubble. And so a Christian like that, you know, a Christian who their whole life they've, they've rejected baptism, they've rejected the Lord's Supper, that's kind of one of those wood, hay, and stubble moments where you're like, I can't believe that. I can't believe I held that false belief, but I'm still saved. The foundation still is there. Okay, So that's the way we can look at it. And of course then, what, how do we want to build in a way that pleases the Lord, in a way that's faithful, in a way that takes His treasures, gold, silver, and precious stones. And we're laying those upon the foundation of our faith in Christ Jesus. We're building with those materials, the things that God Himself has given, and they're fireproof. Now, the thing about them is, imagine building with gold and silver and precious stones. It's costly. It takes time. You think, well, how quickly could I build if I've got to procure gold and silver and precious stones? And precious stones are like this. You know, what kind of building am I going to have? It's not going to be very impressive. Right. But it's going to be fireproof, which is another way of saying pleasing to God. It's not going to be burned up. It's going to stand. And that's really what we want to build. Even if it's small and insignificant and hated by the world and despised by larger Christianity, we want to be faithful. We want to build small. We want to have everybody scoff at us. Oh, it's not very impressive. Um, but it's fireproof. That is, it's pleasing to the Lord. So that's the goal of the Christian life, this kind of humility. Humble yourselves and he will exalt you. Exalt yourself and you will be humbled. I mean, there's a lot of very arrogant televangelists. I mean assuming they're saved in the first place, which is assuming a lot, uh, who are going to go and see their entire life's work burned up like that, because it was all wood, hay, and stubble. It was all about you and money and everything else, right? Um, God desires all men to be saved. We should too, even televangelists. So we hope that in their heart of hearts, they still believe in the Lord Jesus, right? But anyway, this is an important template which we, with which we can analyze these things so that so that we're not attacking fellow Christians, even if they've they've assented or learned wrong theology, they still have the right result. We want to look at that and say, that's because of God's word working in and through them. That's not because of their theology, that's despite their theology. And we can actually rejoice in that because we see God working. We see that even the lies of the devil and even false theology cannot stop God from his powerful work. I have a, a comment on that, and then I had a previous comment. Um, back in the 70s, I worked for somebody that um, he bounced from room to room, and I'd always say, look at you looking all saved, you know, because he was all about how he felt and how he looked. And he said, well, you Lutherans. And I said, yeah, but our, I worship with people who are aware of forgiveness humble in their sin and you know i i think that separates us so we may not look on the outside like we're looking all saved mm -hmm. but we're confident of it mm -hmm. you know the other Correct. thing is um when you said the devil has worked uh to take away the sacraments yeah i think that that's true 
And I think he doubled down with this COVID because there's a lot of people now who think, one of my sisters included, I could just watch the TV in my jammies and mm -hmm. forget the sacrament. Yeah. And I had kind of a little set to with somebody in an exercise class this week, and she says, you go to church every week? I just watch it. I'm, and I said, well, it's my community in the Eucharist. And, mm -hmm. you know, and she says, oh, I have friends. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, I don't mean that kind of community. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and I think it's kind of a doubling down because so many people think that's enough. Mm -hmm. And and yet I know it's, it'll. I have to watch it online this next month for a few weeks. Yeah. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to miss a sacrament. Well, so telling, so telling, the words that stand out to me, you know, that's enough. Yeah. The, those, those, in those two words is the entire downfall of Christianity in the West. <laughs> because for, for how many, for how many decades have we been doing Christianity this way? What's the least? What's barely enough? I don't need to go to church on Sunday. I can, Hear the word on my own. That's enough. Is that the fullness? Is that what Christ wants? Is that what the scriptures say? Is that what the apostles give? No, that's enough, though. Are you going to argue with me that that's not enough? Bare minimum Christianity has destroyed Christianity. Because you just keep the bar going lower and lower and lower and lower uh, until there's nothing left. Yeah, I think... I think that's the most telling thing to me, to my ears. And I thank you for your comment. Obviously, your comment's bigger than that um, in terms of its its scope and the way we can meditate on it. But we want to um, kind of, obviously, we want to help people see that attending church, the bodily presence with the saints, gathering together as one in one holy communion cannot simply be replaced by staring into your screen by yourself. I mean, what a tragedy. Um, but again, just diagnosing at one level deeper than that, what's going on is bare minimum Christianity. What's the least I have to put in? What's the least I have to do? What's the most comfortable for me? If those are the questions we're asking, we've lost a lot. We've lost a lot. We want to ask rather not what's the bare minimum, but what, would, what does Christ have for me? What's the fullness that he has for me? Yeah, and this is what we need to recover. I mean, I think, I actually think that, you know, if I were to kind of nebulously define a, a reformation here in America that I would love to see, it would be that, that we stop asking, what is bare minimum Christianity? And we start asking, what is the fullness that God has for us? What is the fullness that the tradition of the church has for us? I and mean, we're going to make a big distinction there between what has God as its origin and man as its origin. But full, more, the abundance, the feast, not, hey, what can I, what can I subsist on? Um, that's comfortable for me until I exit this. You know, what, a, what a selfish, shallow, anemic spirituality. And I don't mean to be personal about it towards your friend. I just mean in general. Right? Yeah. Thank you for that. Yes, please. Uh, I thought that evangelicals in their thinking are disconnected from logic um, and are disregarding Scripture itself. With Christ's miracles, he was able to say the word. And it happened. Mm -hmm. And God's creation of the world by the world, word. Mm -hmm. This parting of the Red Sea. He can do anything he wants with water, which has implications for baptism, mm -hmm. as Naaman washed in the Jordan and so forth. Mm -hmm. Do they accept those miracles? 
but not the miracles that are right in front of them. Because mm-hmm. I think of the time when there were people saying, oh, Christ is doing this by Beelzebub. Yeah. yeah. And, and what, what do we say? Are we like those people who don't accept the miracles in front of them? Well, well yeah, what you, yeah, and what you're doing, if you flip it, is a nice way to talk to evangelicals of, well, you believe that Jesus can heal by his word, right? Um, right. You believe that Jesus heals by not just his word, but by spitting on mud and rubbing it in the man's eyes. You know, you believe that Jesus uses physical means to do all these things. So then when he tells you that he's turning this bread into his body and this wine into his blood, do you not also believe? Now, I think it helps us to, so you can use that, I think, helpfully to build a bridge. Um, now, I think it helps us to get a little history, like where does this stuff really come, come, come from in the history of the, the 2,000-year history of the church? It's not like this view has been around forever. It hasn't. Um, this view that baptism is our work and the Lord's Supper is our work and these things are merely symbolic, this comes out of, out of this sentiment and it comes out of the 16th century primarily. Other than that, you just have little tiny sparks and that's it here and there, um, but it never catches on. How does it go? What's the origin of this? It goes like this um, and, and you're going to notice the pattern right away. Okay, That's too Roman Catholic. What's the argument here? What's the argument? Roman Catholics are engaged in all kinds of false doctrine. This is the 16th century argument. Engaged in all kinds of false doctrine, all kinds of superstition, all kinds of... So if it's Roman Catholic, it's bad. And that reaction has carried, which is, okay, we've identified an error. What are we going to do? Swing into the opposite error. Yeah, and so now the opposite error is um, Roman Catholicism, bad. Pastors, bad. Sacraments, any authoritative pastor, right? We like the pastor who's our best buddy, but not the, not an authoritative pastor, like, bad. Um, sacraments, bad. Um, liturgy, bad. Creeds, bad. In some cases, Lord's Prayer, bad. Um, if it's Rome, it's bad. And that, and that's just the opposite error. So um, this is why we Lutherans have to put up with, well, you're not Reformed enough. <laughs> no, we're just not willing to swing into the opposite error. We're going to stand in correction to Rome, but only on the errors, and we're going to retain all that is good, godly, and right. And we're not going to swing into the opposite error. So that's why the Lutherans find themselves fighting a two-front battle um, from the 16th century forward. But yeah, I think it really helps us to understand that it's not... It's not a deficiency or maliciousness on the part of evangelical people. Um, they're, they're being taught. This is being passed on. Their pastors are being taught as we, uh, the next generation are being taught as we speak. And, but what is the, what is the presupposition? Rome did this stuff. It's superstitious. It's of the Antichrist. It's bad. We're going to be opposite of that. And we Lutherans are trying to, you know, as loudly as we can to say, hey, there's a, there's a middle way. <laughs> There's a way in the middle to not fall into either of these errors. Um, come check it out. So that's that's what we're up to. And I've, along that line, I've thought, well, then Catholics celebrate Christmas and Easter. Maybe we should eliminate those two. And lo and behold, <laughs> lo and behold, we've seen just this, haven't we? Um, such and such community church of 15,000 members will not be meeting on Easter Sunday. We will be out in the community serving. We've seen it. Absolutely. So it's just it's just a matter of watching this play out um, and to to its extremities until the church becomes unrecognizable to the world, you know, indistinguishable. I mean, from the world.
Okay, well, thank you for those observations. Yes. Just quickly, um, one of my professors from the, the seminary, his name is Dr. Adam Kuntz, he, um, in diagnosing what he finds to be erroneous about evangelical sacramentology is that he finds that there is a core a philosophical assumption at root of it, which is that the finite is not capable of the infinite. Mm. And so with that, um, he views, um, he sees the evangelicals as not really having the theological framework to talk rightly about the sacraments at all. Yeah. So he, that's, that's one of the things. It's a little academic. About. I mean, yeah. um, we can drive up on a Sunday morning to Saddleback and pull people coming out if they're aware of that their false sacramentology is done on the basis of, um, finitum non capax infinity. <laughs> um, probably not. But, uh, but a, but a really, um, educated, well educated, um, reformed person or a reformed theologian would rely on to be certain. Now, the problem with that, the okay, so um, that has many applications, but one application would be if it's truly Christ's body, then it's truly finite. If it's a human, this is how the philosophy works, the reasoning works. If it's a human body, it's finite. It can only be in one place at one time, and it's up in heaven at the right hand of God. It can't be spread on altars everywhere. Um, so that's, the, that's like one application of that principle. Um, now, if that's true, that the finite is not capable of the infinite, well, what else isn't true? Okay, is the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, infinite? Yeah, no matter what quality is in question, he's infinite. Is he incarnate or enfleshed via the, via, um, the Holy Spirit and the um, Virgin Mary? Yeah. So in Christ, I mean, Christ is literally the instantiation of the finite containing the infinite. So if you really hold that principle, you're going to end up not with a incarnation. You're going to, you might end up at best with a kind of Nestorianism, where you've got Christ, the infinite, and the man, uh, the finite, and there's like two boards glued together. And you actually find this pop up in weird places in, um, you know, when people are, especially like around Christmas and, um, Easter, <laughs> you find these, these just really odd statements like, um, Jesus, uh, wrestled internally with sinful temptation and this kind of thing. Like, uh, like, okay, and you're like, no, <laughs> that would be, that would be the presence of original sin within him. Now, how did you get there, Calvinist? <laughs> You know, how did you get there, American? And if you start thinking about it, you start pinning it back, it's, it's to this. It's this idea that Jesus, the, the, the lower board, the man, the human, he has everything that we have, and Jesus, the, the divine one, the upper board, has none of it. And so it's this false Christology that's at work and then manifesting in this obviously false and impious statement. Anyway, thank you for that reflection. All right, um, let's let's um, jump back into the text. One nineteen, um, bottom, last full paragraph. Well, I don't know. Maybe we should get the really big text in front of it. The really big text on one nineteen. If it's really big, it must be important. Every kind of religious experience seeks to deliver certainty to its believers. They cannot. Any theology that isolates spirituality to our insides is doomed to uncertainty. 
the scriptures in contrast begin outside of us. Certainty and confidence are on the outside. The Lord delivers his certain love and unmovable kindness in the external word. In fact, the Lutheran Church understands that most spiritual action is outside of us. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, the absolution, preaching and teaching and hearing of the word, all of these things begin outside of our heart. The Lord in his mercy has bound up all these things with his promises. These things are sure even when we are not. These things are certain even when we have doubts. When we know the Lord's works outside of us, we have some certainty and stability. When we know that the Lord, the Lord's works are objective, we have a solid foundation on which to build our faith. All right. So one of the ways that this acutely manifests itself, and I don't think that this generally does so in kind of brand new Christians, but Christians who have been around for a little while have inevitably experienced something like this in one way, shape, or form, to one degree of uh, difficulty or another. But it's it's a question of, are you sure you're saved? That's kind of how it begins. Are you sure you're saved? And it's the devil, the world, and our sinful nature. Usually the devil in our sinful nature. Um, are you sure you're saved? Yes, I, I'm sure I'm saved because I have faith in Jesus. Do you have faith in Jesus? And here's usually the, here's usually the subtle trick. Okay. The subtle trick is you transform faith into obedience to the first commandment. Because as soon as the devil's done that, you're doomed if you keep playing. Because no matter if you answer yes or no, you, you, so, um, so you have faith in Jesus. Is that right? Your, your faith has never wavered. Your faith is certain. And on what basis? On the basis of my works. Oh, so it's on the basis of your works that you're saved. Is that right? It's it's your good works flowering forth that show the genuineness of your faith. What about your sins? Doesn't Jesus say that only bad fruit goes, grows from a bad tree? If you've got bad fruit, don't you have? Aren't you a bad tree? And, you know, this can take any form, but it but it continues along these lines. Um, and the point is to either get you to a point where you are boasting in yourself, boasting in your works, I am pulling it off, I have integrity, I am fulfilling that, all the while not realizing that your, whole, your entire argument and everything that the devil's building up in you right there is self-righteousness. It's me, it's up to me, and I'm doing it. Um, now, the other, the other way that this goes, though, of course, is despair. And so the despair goes like, no, I'm not, no, I'm not pulling it off. No, my faith must be a sham. My faith must just be words and not deeds. All my good works are, in fact, colored with sin. I'm not even sure they're good works at all. I'm not sure they're any more righteous than what the pagans... Maybe the here's a pagan that look, appears more righteous than me. My faith must be hypocritical faith. I'm going to be one of those to whom Jesus says, you know, I say, Lord, Lord, and he's going to say, I do not know you. And so this, so this temptation goes, but it's an assault on faith. And you're lost as soon as you try to say, well, I'm going to have faith that I have faith. You know, how are you saved? Faith. Well, how do you know you have faith? I have faith that I have faith. Boom. Gotcha. And now he's going to pry you to whichever way your personality and soul is built into self-righteousness or into despair. That's the, And there's no way out of this. There's just no way out. 
So um, in this acute kind of temptation, the only answer, I mean, you realize that you're just drowning in yourself and you're incapable, and the only thing you can cling to is faith in my faith, a faith in my works, both of which make me the Savior, and you, you reach this dead end. Now, this is the real strength of God being outside of us, extra knows, because he speaks and says, I absolve you. He, he acts and baptizes you. He speaks and says, take, eat, take, drink for you for the forgiveness of your sins. So what this does then is places like, am I saved or not? Outside of the question of do I have faith and places it in God's hands. Has God saved me? Yes, he's baptized me. Has God forgiven me? Yes, he's absolved me. Does God desire me to have eternal life? Yes, he gives me the very body and blood of his son for the forgiveness of my sins, that I might be one with him, raised with him, live with him forever. All right, so all our certainty then, especially in acute temptations, lies outside of us. And this is a beautiful thing as well, um, because then you start to recognize that the question is, you know, are you saved? Yes, because I have faith. Do you have real faith? That You can stop right there and say, the question isn't, do I have real faith in my heart? The question is, does God lie? Because faith doesn't look to itself. Faith looks to God. And God says, I have baptized you. I have absolved you. Take, eat, for the forgiveness of your sins. The question isn't, do I have faith? The question is, does God lie? The answer is no, he doesn't, and he has said these things, therefore I know. And now you see why we call faith passive or empty, like a cup, because it's not filled with itself. It's filled with what God pours into it. It's, it's filled with the thing outside of it that isn't actually itself. Faith is the cup that grasps hold of the wine. It's the wine that is worth anything. And so that wine is poured into us, and it's it's the question not of do you, do you have faith or not, but does God lie or not? So now, not all Christians are are you know getting tempted this way because they're just on a different plane, and Satan's got a different way of working on on them um, to accomplish his. But this is um this is how it goes for Christians uh, who have I think a certain degree of maturity. I've experienced this as a pastor over and over, and you know that at root, very often in people's spiritual struggles, is this question: How do I how do I know? How can I be certain? And the answer of look inside yourself, either at the legitimacy of your faith or the legitimacy of your works, is a mistake. We have to look outside to who God is and what he's done for us. And there's our certainty. There's our certainty that you can literally be the worst sinner on earth. You can be all sinners combined and still know that you are saved on account of the fact that Christ bore the sins of the world and that Christ has indeed baptized you he does indeed absolve you, and he welcomes you to his table even still. And so that is the that is the ultimate way in which we can rid ourselves of this satanic temptation. So all of this stuff really is no child's play because in an acute satanic and spiritual attack, um, it's absolutely essential to have these things. Otherwise, we're going to be the devil's playground. All right, so... Um, what are we saying then? Are we going to say, are we going to go so far that since these things are outside of us, the word and the sacraments, that um, then faith doesn't matter at all? No, that's not the question. So this would be kind of the other side of the coin relative to what I was just saying. And look at the, uh, the first full paragraph on page 120. 
So Wolf Mueller has just concluded, when we know that the Lord's works are objective, we have a solid foundation on which to build our faith. That is, faith grasps hold of these things. And then Wolf Mueller continues, this is not to say that baptism, the Lord's Supper, preaching, or any other external work of God brings us any benefit apart from faith. Faith believes the promises God gives in these gifts. Right, so faith is that which asserts, is God lying? No, God hath said. Okay, I can, I, faith can even concede, okay, I have no faith at all, I don't exist at all, I'm nothing, but has God said? Has God done? Yes, he has. That's the definition of faith, right? Faith looks not to itself, it isn't curved in on itself, faith looks to Jesus and the word and sacraments of Jesus. That's exactly the nature of faith. Faith isn't self-aware, faith is aware of Jesus. Faith is aware of God. Faith is aware of word and sacrament. Faith clings to what he has said. It doesn't cling into any merit or worthiness of its own. It doesn't say, I'm faith and I'm here, so I'm saved. Faith says, what does my Lord say? You see the difference? Subtle, but of absolute importance and increasingly so dependent upon the spiritual attack. So what we're saying is not, hey, get baptized and then don't believe and then you'll still be saved. That's not what we're saying. We're not saying, live in manifest and penitent sin, but make sure you come to the Lord's Supper and all will be well. That's not what we're saying either. What we are saying is that faith grasps hold and clings to these words and sacraments of God, and therein derives the benefit of them. All right, so again, just second sentence from Wolf Mueller in that paragraph. Faith believes the promises God gives in these gifts. By faith, we receive the spiritual benefits and blessings that God promises. But our faith is built on the rock-solid foundations of the works and promises of God, not on the shifting sands of our own heart. That's the key. Um, you, don't, you don't find a lot of uh, American evangelicals having a crisis of faith or wrestling through the kinds of temptations that I just described. Why? Because there's nothing to cling to. So when the temptation and attack comes, they're gone. Um, there are uh, a number of uh, megachurch pastors and church musicians who have suddenly said, I'm not feeling it, I lost the faith, I'm out. And it happens almost instantaneously, and it's a great shock and surprise to everyone, except when you diagnose what they say. I once had the faith, and now I don't. Where's their, where's their eyes set? Do I have faith or not? One day I had faith, the next day it's gone. And sometimes I'll be like, oh, I want to be saved, but I can't be hypocritical. I don't have faith. So if you pay really close attention to the language that these that these guys use, I mean, it's a, tra it's a tragedy. I'm not glorying in this in the least. But when you pay really close attention to the spiritual language they're using, the theological terms they're using to define why it is they fell away, it's one day I had faith and now I don't. Their eyes are set on their hearts and they're perceiving that something was there and now it's not. That's faith in faith. And it's why the second the devil brings that temptation, you just collapse. Because you go, yeah, you're right, it's hypocritical, it's always been hypocritical, I'm out. That's the response. Now, what, of course that's not what Christ wants for us. 
So, as you have the sacraments and that temptation comes, now there's opportunity to wrestle and fight because you grasp hold of the things of God and faith grasps those things of God and says, well, I may be illegitimate, I may be hypocritical, I may be rotten, I may be a burning wick, you know, a smoldering wick, but a smoldering wick he does not put out. That's his word, that's his promise. So, no matter how fake or phony or skewed or, or whatever my faith might be, I don't care. God has said these things to me. God has done these things for me. On that I stand, right? And that's the true nature of faith grasping a hold of God. And that is what overcomes temptation. That's what's meant, by the way, in Revelation 12. They overcome him by the blood, the devil, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of testimony. Both of those things belonging to God that he's giving to us. So anyway, please. Have you ever thought about or analyzed the phrase that they use? It's so interesting. Fake it till you make it. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. And about I've that. heard pastors say this, you know, in in people that are kind of having a faith crisis. Just fake it till you make it. And I think yeah. that answers Estelle's issue to an extent. Though your women friends, they're faking it till they make it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't want to. Yeah, I don't want to. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't personally want to judge people's hearts. I just want to judge no. what they say. And um, it's yeah. But, but I, that's an expression they use. Well, the fake it till you make it. I mean, I. It's not a. It's not really a phraseology. I. Yeah. I no. <laughs> I don't think I'd apply that to the question of faith. Um, fake it till you make it. I don't think I've ever used that language. But I, th- you know, about the only application of fake it till you make it is probably vocational language because you have no idea what you're doing. Congratulations, you're married. <laughs> Congratulations, you're a, you're a father or a mother. Pretend like you know what you're doing <laughs> until you do. That's, uh, that's probably sound advice in those, um, in those categories, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Much above that, I wouldn't find an application for it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. You're not going to know about it because they're faking it. Oh, I see. Yeah. Until they get over the fake, fake crisis. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, don't do that. I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> I'm speaking oh, hypothetically, oh, of course. <laughs> yeah, when you have a faith crisis, come to a Lutheran pastor and tell him what's up, and he'll keep it all confidential, but he'll probably give you some of these things to cling to, and he'll probably talk through some of the ways that the devil in your flesh have uh, misled you and, and tangled you up. It happens It happens to all of us. It happens to pastors, too. It's why pastors need pastors. Um, you can't diagnose yourself. You, you No more can you be your own uh, lawyer or your own surgeon um, or your own pastor. You have to have people outside of you who can help you, um, particularly when you get all tangled up and all wound up about things, which we always do. I mean, the devil's had how many thousands of years to practice this art? He knows us better than we know ourselves. He can look right at Rhodey and be like, I know how to play this guy. Um, but uh, God is very kind and gracious and gives us these things to which we can cling and then gives us pastors and fellow Christians that can point us to these things and um, by his grace we're sustained. So, yeah, there's nothing to be ashamed in all of this. Um, you know, as we go through spiritual wrestles, you just you need to know that there are answers. All right, well, um, let's call it a day there. Next week, uh, hide and seek with the Holy Spirit. 
I'm looking forward to that. And those of you who tag along to the 11 o'clock class, today we will have the 11 o'clock. Next week we won't. Next week the 11 o'clock will be canceled. So make a note of that. Um, but next week this class will meet and we'll discuss hide and seek with the Holy Spirit. Should be fun. The Lord be with you.